Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, a podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex philosophical, spiritual, and political ideas in an engaging and accessible way. Well, friends, what an honor to be able to present an episode with the, well, let's just say scientific genius, James Lovelock, creator of the Gaia Theory. Um, if you know anything about me, um, you'll know that my main mentor in life was the geoscientist and biologist Lynn Margulies, who co-created Gaia and developed the Gaia Theory with James Lovelock. Um, and... For all the time that I studied with her and was close to her for years after I was done with school and talked about, Jim was always just sort of looming in the background of all those conversations, but I had never met Jim. And um, this Gaian idea, the Gaia hypothesis now, I think more correctly called the Gaia theory, has been very influential um, on me and the way I organize my thinking. And of course, it's also been <laughs> profoundly influential on science, biology, geoscience, climate science, all that. I studied with Lynn for years. And in fact, this episode uh, with Jim is coming out uh, the day after uh, Lynn's 10th death anniversary. So Lynn died on uh, November 22nd of 2011, and this episode is coming out on November 23rd, 2021. And you can listen to uh, the conversation I had with Lynn just before her death. In fact, it's the last recorded conversation with her before her death um, on episode 91 of this show, Against Everyone with Connor Beeb 91. It was with Lynn, and I'm front-loading all of this just to say that um, this episode with James Lovelock is a companion episode to episode 91. I'm going to talk a lot about Gaia before the show officially sort of gets underway with our conversation because I want to give you a bit of context. I want you to understand what Jim and I are talking about. Um, and some of what I say is repeating what's on that episode, 91, uh, but focusing more on Jim's contribution to Gaia. So what is Gaia? Gaia is the work of relational loops, a push and pull between bacteria, other organisms, and the environment to create a sort of homeostasis, more probably, probably a homeoresis, but constant conditions that kind of regulate the entire planet like an organism. So the clouds, the atmospheric gases, the pH and salinity of the ocean and other earth systems express a dialogue between the organisms and uh, on earth and their environment. And this dialogue is Gaia theory. Particularly relevant to these relational loops, sometimes called feedback loops, are the smallest living beings, the bacteria. Um, and that's a big part of Lynn's contribution because she studied bacteria so much and wrote so much about bacteria. That in this dialogue, the information yielded and received by bacteria in the environment is absolutely crucial to the existence of life on this planet. So this constant push and pull between organisms and environment uh, create this regulation where if you removed that dialogue or these loops or just the bacteria or certain geosystems or whatever, 
everything on the planet dies. The world becomes a Mars or a Venus overtaken by a harshness or billowing clouds so thick that everything is obscured and killed. This theory of these relational loops and this homeostasis was really long resisted by a lot of scientists, especially biologists. Um, even though the science behind Gaia, particularly that found in James Lovelock's formulation, is complex and detailed and not guesswork at all. But because Jim named it um, after a suggestion from his friend, the novelist William Golding, so if you know Lord of the Flies, William Golding, um, he named it after his friend's suggestion, Gaia. And a lot of people <laughs> uh, took some issue with that because it has a mystical, magical, spiritual name. And Jim always says, yeah, but this is what also got it to stick in the public imagination. And that's also really important. And I think a lot of people, especially journalists who talked to Jim <laughs> and Lynn for that matter, tried to trace resistance to Gaia theory to its mystical and religious sounding name. But the truth is, Gaia is just hard for people to understand because it requires interdisciplinary and systems thinking. So all that stuff I just said about Gaia probably might have sounded like word soup to you, but it also takes a sort of um, walking through certain steps of understanding it to get how it works. And that's why it has such a profound effect on the way we think about the world and earth systems. Um, a bit on that difficulty in a minute, but before that, let me not just skip past uh, the fact that a lot of uh, people in the scientific community, when Gaia came up, were really just arrogant and lazy and said, oh, this is must just be magical thinking that the earth wants to self-regulate, that it wants to keep itself in check um, without ever reading the research um, <laughs> that Lovelock had actually done. So to counter this, um, Jim came up with an understandable and accessible metaphor in the form of a computer model called Daisy World. Um, Daisy World is not proof that guy is true, but Lovelock and his colleague Andrew Watson devised the program to see if living and environmental factors could theoretically interact and regulate certain factors in that environment and of those organisms without any intention. So this was to rebuff many criticisms that Gaia had to act through some sort of new age benevolence or intention or whatever, and couldn't just be a dynamic system. In Daisy World, in this model, there are black daisies, which absorb the sun's heat, and there are white daisies, which reflect the heat. Both flowers grow and produce offspring, and both have the same thresholds for life and growth. They can't grow at a lower temperature, and they die at too high of a temperature. The black daisies, which absorb heat, grow faster in cooler conditions, since the heat accumulates in their petals. And the white daisies, which reflect the heat, need warmer conditions to produce more offspring and to thrive. The sun that shines on Daisy World is dynamic. It grows in luminosity over millions of years. Um, and here's a quote from Lynn Margulies uh, that I think makes 
clear the results. So this is from her. Without any extraneous assumptions, without sex or evolution, without mystical presuppositions of planetary consciousness, the daisies of Daisy World cool their world despite their warming sun. As the sun increases in luminosity, the black daisies grow, expanding their surface area, absorbing heat, and heating up their surroundings. As the black daisies heat up, more of the surrounding land surface, the surface itself warms, permitting even more population growth. The positive feedback continues until daisy growth has so heated the surroundings that white daisies begin to crowd out the black ones. Being less absorbent and more reflective, the white daisies begin to cool down the planet. Despite the ever hotter sun, the planet maintains a long plateau of stable temperatures. So after that additional model, or that initial model was made, many additional factors had been added into subsequent Daisy World models because people were still skeptical, like, well, isn't this model just made to prove that Gaia exists by people that already believe Gaia exists? So lots of cheats, uh, was the name for it, were developed, like things that should create some disequilibrium, um, should dysregulate things, knock things out of whack. And, um... Now, nothing seems to have knocked it out of whack. Um, <laughs> the, the daisies in Daisy World have always displayed a deep relationship with their environment. So there's this deep relationship between species selection and planetary temperature regulation that happens, which is one of those relational loops that shows that Gaia is there. And this model is a metaphor in a way for how Gaia works. But then, of course, lots of hard scientific evidence has also been collected for many of those systems that I mentioned before, the clouds, atmospheric gases, pH and salinity of the ocean, etc., etc. So the environment could no longer be seen as some tyrant lording over natural selection uh, or just sort of the baseline for you know, everything that species had to sort of grow and thrive and evolve in. But actually, there was this communication between the species and their environment. And that species, all species, includes us. It's all a co-evolving field. And by implication, all the organisms on the planet are connected by this vast system of regulation and dynamism. Gaian processes are real and observable, and sometimes referred to as biogeochemistry, which is a term way more acceptable to mainstream science than Gaia, I guess. And because of this, Gaia theory is an intense examination of natural selection since Gaia's processes of regulation are the natural selectors. The push and pull of the biota, the biota being the total sum of all organisms on the planet, and the inorganic, or maybe we could say the abiota, their weaving and separations, their gestures of relationship set the framework of regulation. There's no need to be vague about fitness of organisms or what the environment selects for with Gaia in the picture. The Gaia theory is showing us that Gaian's, Gaian or Gaia's processes of regulation are what is at play here. We should resist funneling this into a purpose in the New Age way. Oh, everything is just serving Gaia. Because doing so is essentially the same error as the reductionist scientists. New Age thinkers have appropriated Gaia to mean the Earth is a living organism, or they might refer to Gaia as a goddess, and we know that Gaia TV channel or internet channel that's available now that it's like Gaia is a goddess. We're just trying to contain Gaia's complexity in a simple and inadequate metaphor. 
Um, and we shouldn't also think that Gaia is an organism, that it's just this one being, this one organism. I love what Lynn said about this once when someone said, is Gaia like an organism? And she said, Gaia is not merely an organism. The Earth is more magnificent and active than we can imagine when we start accepting this complex uh, formula of Gaia developed by Jim and Lynn. Gaia is object and process. What do I mean by that? Gaia houses geosystems and the beings, the people who thought up the organizing principles behind those geosystems. In other words, it's got volcanoes and it's got every book and every word and every thought on volcanoes ever written, uh, shelved, and thought up. And at the same time, it is those volcanoes. It's where our greatest loves live. It's where every human heartbeat has ever rhythmically pulsed. It's where we dream up stories and contribute to pollution. And it's the substances that make up the pollution that we <laughs> use to contribute to a polluted world. It's all these things. It's all happening uh, as part of the processes of this whole of Gaia. In this new understanding that something can pulse with life and yet be beyond our concepts of livingness, those concepts begin to change. So what do I mean by that? If Gaia is conscious, um, which is what people condemned it as being, oh, Gaia must have wants and needs, and that's so mystical, so it can't be true. But if Gaia is conscious, it possesses a consciousness of a different magnitude and probably of a different order altogether. So I'm just saying this to sort of counter some of the things that you might hear about Gaia. People like Richard Dawkins and Jerry Coyne or whatever, they're just ill-equipped to understand complexity like this because not only does it not fit in with linear and reductive understandings of life and evolution and earth systems, it also exposes those reductive understandings as false. Things are much more complex than that. There's this interweaving dialogue, and that is the Gaian system. That is Gaia. So we are part of Gaia and Gaia lives through us. This also has huge implications for climate change, which Jim has been writing about now for years. If we're part of Gaia, it means our decision-making and our thought processes are also part of Gaia because that's part of humanity and we are part of the Gaian processes. And that ultimately means in a way that morality, the way we approach Gaia, is a selection pressure so in other words, natural selection is working in a way through our morality. Morality is not just shaped by evolution so much as shaping evolution now, shaping the homeostatic and homeoretic processes of Gaia. But just to be clear, Jim's picture of climate change is much more complex even than the one we're constantly presented with, with all those charts and graphs and a dose of guilt constantly. Jim when it comes to climate change does lay the blame on humans in a way, but sometimes in surprising ways. Like he says, it's not just industrialism that causes the problems, but our very exhalations, uh, the, the exhalations of human beings and our pets are so massive <laughs> in their impact that that also contributes. And furthermore, there are factors beyond our control. The sun heating up, it's luminosity like in Daisy World contributes and other geosystems 
Rather than feel guilty and helpless, we should, Jim says, recognize ourselves as part of Gaian processes. Where he goes from there in his latest book, Novacine, is controversial and I think also moving. He says, surprisingly, I think, <laughs> that uh, computer beings are evolving as part of our actions, part of who we are. We've generated these kind of computer beings. And that um, rather than those being here to destroy us, like some evil robots, or like those weird dog robots that you've probably seen videos of that people are terrified, guns are going to be mounted on, hunting people down, like Terminator, whatever. Rather, these computer beings will help the guy in homeoresis, homeostasis along as well, because it will be in the best interest of these beings to regulate the climate along Gaian lines. It's a challenging but ultimately positive view of technology um, that I think dismisses both the reductiveness of singularity array Kurzweil thinking and also total anti-tech sentiment. It's one that echoes statements made by occultist Rudolf Steiner, um, who I talk with uh, about, or talk about with Jim on this episode. Uh, he made those comments about 100 years ago around the time of Jim's birth because Jim is 102. <laughs> Before I share this episode with you, I want to apologize a bit for the sound. I know people listening often don't notice when the person making the podcast is like, oh, there's some sound issues and then no one hears it until you say it. So I probably shouldn't be saying it. Um, the sound does improve about 25 minutes in, but there's a little bit of clunking around. The reason why I'm bringing this up is not just to say there's a little bit of a sound issue, but also, you know, Jim is 102. I had to go record in person. Um, you can't do this over Zoom. I mean, I could have hired someone to go to his house and record his end for him and record on my end for me. But I, first of all, wanted to meet the man that was this huge part of changing my thinking and be in the presence of him and something different happens when you're sitting in a room with somebody. Um, but also, um, you know, it's the equipment I used is more sensitive than the Zoom equipment. So I'm taking things with me that are more, you know, sensitive than just talking on a microphone to Zoom. And I'm not quite good enough to handle talking loudly with someone whose hearing is different and requires a mic stand. I don't have a ton of experience with that. So better equipment would help. So this is where this is leading to my pitch for my Patreon. <laughs> Please support this show so I can travel more to meet amazing people that it is actually might be hard to do Zoom calls with, or people that it would just make a significant difference to be in their presence. Um, so go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib and support the show. Also, so I can get equipment, which is up to the task in all cases to at least fill in the blanks where I'm not sure how to manage. I don't have experience talking with someone who has different needs all the time. Um, and so I can get equipment that <laughs> covers up my ineptitude, <laughs> my inadequacy in those sorts of situations, but in all sorts of situations. I'd also love to have a studio here in Dublin, which makes in-person and also distance recording easier. So 
This show is supported by listeners like you. You may be a listener who supports the show, in which case, thank you. And if not, please do go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib so I can make all of this better. And, uh, you know, pledge at whatever amount you want. If you would buy me a cup of coffee once a month uh, just for saying thanks, I really like the show, then please do go to Patreon and contribute that amount or whatever amount you see fit. All right. Uh, this episode, like all episodes, is available to everybody, including that episode with Lynn Margulies, which is episode 91. So after you're done with this one, you can go listen to that one. You can go listen to all of them. They're all free. Please do support the show. <laughs> okay, here we go. Here's my conversation with scientific genius James Lovelock. Hello, everybody. This is Against Everyone with Connor Habib. Hello, James Lovelock. It's so nice to finally meet you. Hi. Oh, it's my pleasure <laughs> to have you. Yeah, yes. It's been a long time coming because of having studied with Lynn. I mean, you were just this sort of looming figure who was never present in my education, but still always ever present in my education anyway. You were always there, you know. I mean, I've listened to so many interviews with you and everybody asked the same few questions and they're always like, oh, well, what, do you regret using the term Gaia? And you always say, no, of course not. No, of course not. And I think, why do people keep asking him this question? <laughs> <laughs> they keep asking the same question. They know the answer. The answer is no. <laughs> you know, so. Incidentally, you did know it wasn't my idea. Gaia. Yeah. Yeah. It was Bill Golding. It was Golding's. Yeah. Was yeah, yeah. Who was influenced by Rudolf Steiner? Because he was uh, <laughs> as well. He he lived almost next door. Yeah, yeah. Well, it started in 1961, quite out of the blue. I got a letter from uh, a man called Abe Silverstein, who was, uh, I think, director of spaceflight operations for NASA, and uh, now I'd read science fiction since I was so high. I loved it. And to get a letter from the head of space flight operations at NASA was a great excitement. And he wanted me to um, come to uh, California and help them with instruments on the um, first of the Mars landing things. It was the emissions after Mariner. And, uh, well, I couldn't say no, could I? I mean, uh, I gave up a, a civil service job when I had, with a pension and all of that kind of thing, when I had four children to support and went off for no, on with no prospects as far as money was concerned okay. uh, to, to California because of this. It wasn't long before... I got a professorship at Baylor College of Medicine because I was mainly in medical research at that time, and that that sort of paid for me. <laughs> yeah. So, can you tell me when in the in the formulation of in the formulation of Gaia? So this is 
much further down the line, obviously, than in what you were saying. But in the formulation of Gaia, at a certain point, I think Lynn Margulies reached out to you. Is that right? Because someone said to her, oh, you reached out to her. Well, she did. But about, um, that was 61, I went to America, first to JPL, uh, and mixed with the people there. I didn't meet Lynn until the 70s return, somewhere in the early 70s. So it was nearly 10 years after uh, I'd started. Now, I didn't think of Gaia at all, not that name, uh, at JPL. But what they asked me was how I would find life on Mars. Mm -hmm. And what they knew that I'd designed tiny little instruments. Let me show you one. And then... Okay. You see, the problem my uh, NASA had was they went to a lot of scientists, both in America and Europe, and said, can you uh, design an instrument that we can send to Mars? Uh Well, they all came back with commercial bits of hardware, but they were as big as Wurlitzers. Don't forget, in 1961, the rockets carrying the things up to space were really quite small, and they couldn't carry anything big. And they heard about that I did invented this these, this thing, because that that's really can be used in two ways, and it covers almost the whole range of chemical analysis. Mm. It, you, it, and it's incredibly sensitive. It's so sensitive that if we had a a pint glass filled with a, with any of a whole range of substances, tipped it up in here, you could detect it a week later in Japan just from the air blowing going in that direction. Um. So when you were let me ask. So when you're creating this, so this is the electron capture detector, the ECD right. or the ECD. So when you're inventing it. To solve that certain problem, right? Now, (laughs) I'm sorry, this is going to sound like the stupidest question in the world. But, like, I can't even conceive of how the pathway would work from imagination to drawing that down into reality and to becoming a device. So can you tell me a little bit about the process of of creating a device like this. For yes, you. it was quite easy. Uh, <laughs> of um, course. <laughs> uh, well, no. Uh, I'd been working with uh, a colleague, another lady called Audrey Smith, on freezing hamsters and then bringing them back alive with an early version of the microwave oven. Yeah. And uh, that was highly successful. And I needed to know why the hamster was quite unique. It was almost the only animal that uh, we were able to freeze. Everything else is killed by when they go below naught uh, and ice forms in their bodies. Um, So I thought about it quite a bit, and I came to the conclusion that it might be a consequence of the fats in their body freezing. Mm. And uh, most body fats freeze about minus uh, three, no, no, minus two Celsius, somewhere just about, just below freezing. And uh, 
that, of course, hinders everything and they don't survive. Mm. Um, but the hamsters' fats were much more unsaturated and didn't freeze till a considerably lower temperature, about minus five, I think it was. But that, I may be wrong on that, it's a long time ago. And uh, so I thought, well, I'll collect some uh, tissue fat from some hamsters by extracting it and uh, then give it to Archer Martin, who had just invented the gas chromatograph mm. at that time. He got a Nobel Prize for it, deservedly. And I went to him because he was in the lab one floor above mine and I said, could you analyse these fats for me? And he said, oh, I'd love to do it. It's just the job we made the gas chromatograph for. Mm. And then he suddenly said, but how much is there there? And I said, oh, about 100 micrograms. And he said, that's no good. We need 100 times as much before we could analyse it. Mm. And uh, my heart sank because I knew that would be about three months' work to get it. And how many hamsters? <laughs> yes, <laughs> quite, exactly. Quite a bit of and, hamsters. <laughs> uh, um, uh, anyway, and then Archer said, looked at me, and his eyes sprinkled, sprinkled um, but you could always invent another detector for me that's more sensitive. And I thought, ah, that's a heck of a sight, better ah. than uh, extracting all that hamster fat. Um, and so I went off and invented that thing. It took two weeks. It's so I had no idea actually that the ECD was related to the microwave and Don't hamster worry. Experience. It's all it's all woven it's together. It's not your field, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but then as I said, I'm not a scientist, I'm an inventor. Yeah, yeah. And uh I I I'd invented uh, an anemometer for measuring winds, uh, extremely slow air movements, because previously I'd worked a while in medicine on the common cold, mm -hmm. and lots of people thought it was caught by sitting in a draft of air, cold air, and uh, that hence its name, the common cold. And uh, mm. but there was no way of measuring a draft; there weren't any anemometers sensitive enough. So I made one, invented one, and it worked like a dream. And we were able to show it got nothing to do with drafts at all. It was a virus. Um, but that's another story. Um, but uh, this ECD, well, the, the anemometer, the basis of it was not all that different. And I thought, well, I wonder if the electrons inside the device, the ones that are floating around in the gas, uh, are, uh, will react in a certain way with the substance coming in off a gas chromatograph column. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can detect the presence of the what's coming off uh, with a change in electron properties. Mm. And it turned out to be not only true, but extremely sensitive. Mm. And that, that was how it was made. But it wasn't a sort of hard work. As you can see, it's a nice, simple thing. I got myself a watchmaker's lathe so I could make this sort of gear. And it's great fun, you know, sort of doing it. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a rather elegant-looking little device, I have to say. And I'll put a photo of it in the... Well, this yeah. is the sort of final version. Yeah. The uh, early version. The other the ones early were uglier. The early versions are pretty crude. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, and then so and this went on to have a tremendous impact for Rachel Carson, right? Um, when she to in, in measuring particles of That's DVD right. particles, and right? But also in the CFC story. Yeah, in the chlorofluorocarbon. You couldn't detect them at all at the level concentration. See, they were only present at parts per trillion. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, there's no way of detecting that thing, detects me easily. Yeah. Uh, and I went on the ship to Antarctica and back and uh, demonstrated how much there was in the atmosphere. And uh, DuPont helped me because they they were able to get in touch with all of the other companies and find out how much had been released to date. Mm. And it turned out the amount in the atmosphere was almost exactly what the same as the amount released, which meant they were just building up. Blah, blah, blah. And they were real danger. Mm. Well, so I want to ask, I want to ask, um, take on the Rachel Carson thing a little bit further, because I think it's really interesting. I bring up Rudolf Steiner a lot on this show. He's had an important part to play in my life. But I know people who are very influenced by Rudolf Steiner influenced Rachel Carson, but also William Golding, your friend, who named Gaia for you, was also very taken by Rudolf Steiner. And also, talking to Lynn once about Rudolf Steiner, she said, well, we love Rudolf Steiner, she said. So I'm actually wondering, but I've never read you directly say anything about him, even though he seems to have this strange thread through your life, if he's come up for you at all. Well, no, I didn't. But I had a lot to do with Rudolf Steiner's ideas because my youngest son was born with an uh, a, a defect, mental defect, mm. uh, that required uh, special schooling and all sorts. And there was a Rudolf Steiner school that he went to, and uh, that was wonderful. It sort of sorted out a lot of his problems. So yeah. I took an interest in it, but I had no direct personal contact. What was it? A was it a Camp Hill community or was it a Steiner school? Do you remember? It was a school in Britain. Okay. At uh, West Hoseley, that's a place in Sussex. That's one of the counties far across the uh, east side of the country. Okay, so w one of the reasons why I'm bringing him up, aside from the fact that I'm very interested, because he was involved with Lynn was involved with him, and so was uh, uh, Rachel Carson. Yes, I can understand it. Uh, the the number of people that were really interested in the destruction of the environment by yeah. civilization yeah. Were, were, were not many, but the few of them shared ideas quite a bit. So it doesn't surprise me that Lynn and Rachel Carlson shared ideas. Well, and also he had similar views on the Nova scene as you, far before robots. Because he, what he said was, look... We're, so, so for people that aren't familiar with Jim's latest book, Novacine, it it's about a symbiotic relation, or a symbiotic, or at least a mutual relationship, with um, with intelligent self-organizing, what we would call synthetic or robotic or computer beings. And it, so Rudolf Steiner had also stated, look. This is coming, and so he's saying this. He's saying this right around the time when you're born, basically. <laughs> he's saying, "Look, this is coming. These this machine age of these thinking kind of. I mean, he didn't have the words to describe it because, of course, they didn't exist then. He said they will come, and what will matter 
is we shouldn't try to stop it from happening. It's inevitable. What will matter is how we greet them and how we interact with them and integrate them into our lives, which I find just very fascinating that then this idea comes again through you, you know, basically a hundred years later in, in your book. Yeah, well, it, it was a different origin altogether. What made me write Novocene, what stirred me initially, was I was getting fed up with a picture of the future beings that might be on the earth, the, the, our descendants, uh, were machines. I mean, the machine to me is an old-fashioned thing. It uh-huh. goes back to uh, two centuries ago, steam engines and whatnot. Mm. Uh, it, why on earth they ever called a computer a machine baffled mm. me because it's hardly got any moving parts in it. Um, right, right. <laughs> you wouldn't get a mechanic to pr- repair your computer for you, would you? It's not some uh, steampunk clockwork lumbering. That's right, yeah. 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 <laughs> so uh, I thought it's time somebody started looking at other ways of um, expressing ideas. And, of course, the the fact that it, one was dealing with computers was uh, obviously the way that it would probably go. And it, it's amazing I mean, Moore's law is frightening almost. Well, it's come to its end now because the gap between uh, conductors and uh, uh, the silicon or whatever they're using is now down to about an atom (laughs) wide. Uh You can't go any further. But what makes one, what nobody seemed to think about was the fact that long before it had got Moore's law to reach that point, there wasn't a ma- anybody in the world could uh, make one mm. because they couldn't, with use using ordinary tools, get down to that sort of tiny size. It required the computers to make themselves. Yeah, and, and once you start on that yeah. route, then right, exactly. You're then you the set it in motion. Yes. Well, you, I mean, also the the it's the same with code now because. When people are programming code, it's so complex that they program on like a level above the level in which the code is supposed to happen. Yeah. So they're sending, so, so they're working on a layer that's not the actual code now, and they right. and so few people can understand it. So now the code is self-organizing in its own yeah, way, and the thing can understand it eventually. Yeah, I mean, I wonder. I wonder. I think maybe some people would object. I, I have to think about it more to see how I feel, but. That you're calling it life because it doesn't seem to share the properties of life. But to do that, you're saying that you would give life a different definition. Now, But do you find that a bit tautological that you're saying, well, this is life, so therefore I'm changing the definition of life? Or Well, one of the things that is not commonly realized, speech is not a good way to explain anything scientific or uh, mechanical that's uh, an operating system, you know, working by itself. And uh, it was Newton first discovered that. And when he was trying to explain in his laws of motion acceleration, he couldn't do it in in speech. So he invented calculus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, that does it. But it, it's not a complete explanation. It's only a partial one. Uh, but it, it's been like that ever since. Mm. Once you get into... But your brain, extraordinarily, can handle all that kind of thing. Because Mm. uh, if you're an inventor, you can invent things. Uh, But you can't really explain them afterwards. 
<laughs> and uh, this causes lots of problems <laughs> and lack of understanding. But if the things that follow us, uh, the computer things, are, are using uh, what should I say, the, all the hardware of uh, silicon chips and so on, uh, then the possibility of understanding at the same level as our brains then comes in. But the great snag is that brains are marvellous. They can do all sorts of things, but they're bloody slow. Uh -huh. I mean, they're, they're a million times slower than uh, sending a message by an electric current. That's a hell of a factor, a million. Hmm. So are you? do you think then that there's much hope for communication between these be, these beings and us? Like, do you think that the communication will be but, something like what you and I are doing now, or will it be more relational in the way that, say, a bacterium has a relationship with, uh, like, the gut? Or will it be, like, in that symbiotic sense, will that kind of communication be happening, or will it be actually kind of a direct, understandable communication like we're having now? No, I don't think we can... If, if let's say, the cyborgs really do appear and evolve, uh, they, it could get there by a series of steps from us, no question. But having got there, I don't think they could speak to us any more than we can speak to a tree. Mm -hmm. um, it's, the the, the, the million-fold difference mm -hmm. in rate is so great that it just isn't possible. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that you can't like a tree mm -hmm. it, uh, or... Um, want to save it or all sorts of things like that. But but communicating directly with it is just not on. Yeah, well, you know the... Um, the, the and the, it wouldn't be with us and them. I see, I see. Well, you know the, um, the quote from the philosopher Wittgenstein who lived in Ireland just before you got there, which is, uh, if a lion could speak, we, well, we so, couldn't understand so did it. Schrodinger. Yeah, yeah. If a lion could speak, we couldn't understand it. So I think that that's you're you're expressing that there's a relationship where the communication is happening, but it's not translatable into the kind of communication that we would understand. Is that what you mean? Uh. So in other words, when you're saying, "Oh, well, we we have a relationship with trees," there's some sort of communication that happens, but it's not it it's not happening on the level of this sort of. Uh, conceptual no, I exchange. can't say to the tree, would you pass me one of your nuts? Right. <laughs> no, but you can do it, right? So yeah. it's a physical, yeah. I mean, so, okay. So let me just back up a little bit and talk about these uh, machine or computer beings are, like, these machine or computer beings are... They're, pro they're processes. So we're not, I mean, you've said many times, I don't want to talk about robots, like it's just some human form robot stumbling around or whatever. I want to talk about, you know, but so there are these sort of dynamic living processes that might be hard at first to recognize as living. So it's not the AI vision that a lot of people have where it's this human shaped head talking yeah. to us or whatever, right? Yeah. But rather, it's something. It, it I, I can almost imagine it like lichens, like there's, you know, this weird symbiotic process that's covering a surface that's spreading and alive, but it almost doesn't look alive to us at all. 
I think we all have to got our own images. I see. You know, yeah, yeah. Things like that. Yeah. And uh, who knows? One of them will be right. <laughs> well, I think it's going to be mine, obviously. <laughs> all wrong is the case. <laughs> well, so, but, you know, also I would say that Lynn Margulies, she was, she was suspicious of this notion. So I'm wondering what, what you think, because I remember she told me the story of someone from Wired magazine calling her. And he was trying to sort of say, oh, the new life will be this sort of artificial intelligence life. And she got angry. She knew the guy's wife was pregnant. She said, well, congratulations. Your wife's about to give birth to a computer. And she hung up the phone. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she was right. Yeah. (laughs) But, oh, yeah. (laughs) She didn't realize she was right about giving birth to the computer. Is that what she mean? Yeah. Yeah. But do you think that maybe some of your focus on this is... Like, because when I look at you and Lynn, and Lynn's focus on the biota, and your focus on the chemical and atmospheric processes, in other words, Not a lot of really. times, it, no, no. So, so you, okay. uh, Lynn was a university professor. Yeah, in a way, so was I, but I wasn't a how can I say a living university professor. My my interest has always been in invention, okay, and in making things, and. Uh, uh, so this gives us a different slant. And when I'm looking at a thing like Gaia, I think of it as a self-regulating system. Okay. I'm not concerned with what it's made of or so much mm. as uh, how does it regulate the climate and what the, and uh, what, what are the factors involved in that. Now, this is very different from what's taught in the university. Mm. In what's taught in the university, it's much more facts. Mm. And... It's quite extraordinary. You can't go out and invent things from what you've taught, been taught in the university. Mm. The inventor is quite often somebody who hasn't had an education at all. Mm-hmm. They're quite remarkable people. Yeah. It's your brain has got the uh, sort of hypercomputer in it, the whole system, and it can answer questions that you can't do in speech. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in some ways you have to nimbly avoid your education to be able to, <laughs> you have to nimbly avoid the academic and educational process to be able to invent because the the power of invention comes from a different Well, faculty. I was lucky because my mother and father were quite poor and my father had just retired from work. So he, they were living on a small pension only. They couldn't support me. Mm. So I had to go to work when I left school, which I did. But I was lucky. I got employment with a firm of consultant scientists who were working for the photographic industry. One of their main customers was Kodak. And uh, they dealt with every problem in the industry, right the way from the gelatin that was the substrate that the films were, were, were laid down in, uh, right the way through inventing colour dyes for colour films and things like that. So I, I've got a right cross-section of all the sciences uh-huh. as a hands-on job. Mm. And I, I'll tell you a very intriguing consequence. When I went to Manchester University as a student in 1939, uh, the uh, I think, yes, the year that the war started... Um, 
uh, I spent two weeks as a student, they accepted me, uh, doing chemistry. And then the professor called to see me, called me to see him, and he said, you can't stay here any longer. And I said, why? <laughs> he said, well, you've been cheating. This is the cheating story. I love this. Go on. You, you go know on, the yeah. story. Yeah, but yeah. go on. Yeah, it's a great story. Yeah. And uh, I said, what do you mean cheating? He said, well, students never get the right answer and never twice running in the first year. And so you must have looked up the answer in the invigilator's notebook. And I said, no, I didn't. I'd done this particular analysis so frequently during my last employment as a lab, lab technician that I could do it in my sleep practically. And I'd been trained, I must get it right, because getting it right was important for people's lives, the, the welfare of the firm, all sorts of things. And as the students are not taught any of that. I mean, I think it... it and then jumping forward in time to, I remember that you mentioned something about, well, people didn't think that the ozone layer was actually being depleted because it didn't fit the models, even when the evidence was presented, this sort of thing. Like, and th there's this reliance on models. There's a reliance on models, but it's not that the problem is models, right? It's that the people who have a stake in the model are not involved in the modeling. Is that it? Because Daisy World is a model after all, right? So it's not a model problem. It's a, a kind of uh, a problem that where the model is divorced from the scientists that might make a use of the model. Is that what you would say? Partly. Um, I do, uh, or in ordinary speech, you can't do what the model is doing quite often. Uh -huh. The model... It's so fast compared with you. It may be a, the simple compu early computers were a thousand times as fast. I mean, the, those nowadays are oh, millions of times faster. And uh, it, it's that that does it because it can make tiny steps one after another and do what Newton's calculus did and give you the answer. But you don't see any of that stepwise process. It all happens inside the box, and uh, uh, so you can't really expect to be able to explain it in speech. Mm -hmm. It's something you, it couldn't, you could never do in speech. You're too slow. Um, not you, personally. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not taking offense, don't worry. <laughs> um, well, I, so, okay. Let me just go back, though, because I was, I was asking about when I was asking about Lynn and you, what I was trying to say was... Oh, well, we came from different worlds. Yeah, so... And we came together yeah. because she does... I was sharing an office with her former husband, Carl Sagan. Yeah. And uh, JPL. And Lynn asked Carl, she said, uh, do you know anybody that knows about oxygen in the air? Because I'm you know, so worried about it as far as evolution goes. And he said, oh, yes. He, he said, you should talk to Jim Lovelock. He shares the office with me or something like that. So we got in touch and I went to her university in Boston, Boston University, 
sometime in the early 1970s because she invited me there. And I remember it very well because she invited me home afterwards because I'd asked her if there was a hotel, she could recommend a hotel. She said, no, I don't stay at the hotel. Come back with me. <laughs> Tell me. She said, I have to put up with a the family. There's four kids there and, <laughs> and my cooking. And uh, so we were getting on very well together by then. And uh, I was glad to go. Yeah. That's how I got to know Lynn. Yeah. But it was there was no meeting before that, no connection, whatever. And all of my work was involved with things like this. Mm. And uh, but then there was a question: How would you detect life on Mars? Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd read that book by Schrödinger, mm -hmm. What is Life, that he wrote when he was in Dublin during mm -hmm. World War II. Um, and uh, he said the, the presence of life on a planet, well, he didn't use those words, but that's what he implied, could be recognised by the reduction of the entropy mm -hmm. of the surface environment. And I thought, ha-ha, here's a way... Mm. Detecting, and I told that to the senior engineer, a man called McGreblian, uh, who I was dealing with, and he said, "Yeah, that's all very well, but uh, entropy. What is it? How would you measure it? Mm. You, you're going to bring me an entropy meter?" Ha ha. And I said, "Well, I hope to at the end of the week." He said, "Well, you've got until Friday." And I knew my job depended on <laughs> thinking an answer to his question by Friday. And it was then Tuesday. <laughs> uh, um, and I remember Thursday night, I was in a cold sweat, and it, suddenly it came on me. It was dead easy. Mm. Just a measure of the chemical composition of the atmosphere. Mm. If the planet um, has life on it, it will be bound to use the atmosphere as a place for raw materials mm -hmm. to build a life and a place to deposit its waste. Mm -hmm. And that will change the chemical composition, obviously. Mm -hmm. And so now the Earth's atmosphere has got a hugely changed composition. Mm -hmm. You've got gases like methane and the oxygen coexisting. Mm -hmm. Well, they react with one another in sunlight, mm -hmm. so that's unstable. So it obviously fits... Uh, Schrodinger's criteria. There's a planet with life. Whereas Venus or Mars, there blows CO2 and uh, very little oxygen, and they don't react. They just stay together. In other words, it's dead. And uh, that was the thing. And then NASA got so excited about this for, that for a time I was spending half the time in Washington and I was put in charge of the Viking experiment. Mm. It didn't last because the biologists all complained bitterly. Not Lynn. She was the one that didn't complain. All yeah. the rest were violently against it. They said, you're never going to find life by mere chemistry. It's got to be much more than that. And uh, uh, so... Yeah, and I, so and as... It wasn't until nearly ten... No, how many years later quite a lot of years later, that I met Lynn in mm. Boston on that occasion. Yeah, so I want to talk about that part about biology because I feel... 
people, well, as you say, subject, the biologists too. have such trouble understanding this concept, right? Still today, although it's gotten some much more traction, even than when I was in school, um, you know, like 20 years ago almost. But I think like Lynn, so, so basically didn't you, as Lynn told it, you were looking for someone that said, do any living organisms produce methane? And she said, well, of course, all microbiologists know that like there are, you know, bacteria that, you know, uh, methanogenesis, all this. So uh, she came, she came to you and she was asking this question, why does everybody talk about life producing oxygen, but nobody talks about all the other gases that life produces. And so you found each other over these questions about gases as well, or you, you, you sort of met on, on that grounds, or, well, grounds, not air, but yeah. Well, it's only one way of do- looking at it. Um, you can take other properties like reflection of light, the albedo of the planet. Mm-hmm. And uh, that led me to make a model, which I call Daisy World. Mm-hmm. And my student at the time was a now senior scientist called Andrew Watson, he was capable of writing a paper in mathematical uh, compute, in mathematical language in such a way that the peer reviewers would accept it. I couldn't. I didn't know it. I'd never been trained that way. But I invented the model, and Andrew then proceeded to take it and turn it into something that could be published. Mm-hmm. And we wrote, got a joint paper between Andrew and me on Daisy World, which showed how a planet could regulate its temperature at the optimum for daisy growth just by having two species of daisies on it. And this brought the biology into the thing. And this is where Lynn and I got really interested. Mm-hmm. Well, so do you think that... Uh, okay. <laughs> but But still, then, people are rejecting Gaia who haven't even read the papers... You know, scientists are rejecting it who haven't read the papers, as you I'm said. Not the least bothered. Right. They're wrong. No, right. No, I know. I know they're wrong, but Read I'm, I'm just going through the historical aspect of it. So, so they, so, so they, in the past, had rejected it without even reading the papers. They had a kind of knee-jerk response to it. Why do you think this concept was and still is so hard for biologists, in particular? To take up and understand. I'm afraid that is primarily American. The Uh, biologists over here and in Europe are on the whole fairly friendly towards it. Um, In 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 America, I live there. I love it. I I, well, we I've spent ten years of my life, so I know America pretty well, (laughs) Uh, and in nearly every state. And uh, so it's. No, I'm not sort of prejudiced when I'm saying this, mm. but in America, it's important to get ahead mm-hmm. in life. Kids are brought up to believe you must get ahead and uh, you you should aim to get to the top. If you've got to cheat a bit on the way, it doesn't matter as long as you get to the top and are recognised mm. at the top. Uh, this, because of a different history in this country, and I think in Ireland too, one tends to think of the propriety of what you're doing, of never cheating, always being honest, as the most important thing. Uh, and the, the, those that get mostly ahead in the game are those that, that are ultra-honest. Mm. And uh, that that's, that's just the difference. Mm. And I think the Americans 
don't like it because the the route I've taken is a complicated one and uh, not not conducive to getting ahead themselves. Uh, whereas here is no, it's, it's neither accepted nor all that much until the Economist had its article two two or three weeks ago. <laughs> That was nothing to do with me. That was purely the Economist, which mm. is a very, and it said there's no other way of looking at. It. Yeah. Well, I mean, it. Yeah, I think it is. There's problems with it in America, but I would also say, most famously, the opponent of it, from my understanding, is Richard Dawkins, who is here, who who's you know, I mean, there's even a yeah, book from MIT Press called swung around. What's that? Forder Doolittle. Yeah. Yeah, and Richard Dawkins' friend, yeah. Swan Grove. Well, and yes, but there's even a book called From Gaia to Selfish Gene, right? Opposing the theories. And obviously, one is yours oh, and Lynn's, and one that, is Dawkins. Not that one, no, just recently. We had a paper in, I think it was Nature or something like that, yeah. saying that, uh, no, that it, it's right, the Gaia's right after all. F- Ford Doolittle just did that? Yeah. For, oh, well, that's. We want to go and see it. All I right. don't think he put it quite as strongly as that. But uh, he's recognizing that the, it was the, their criticism mm. were wrong. But then Richard Dawkins's professor, quite a famous man in Oxford, uh, William Hamilton, mm. he was all against Gaia. Along, in fact, I think he's kicked off Richard's objection because Richard's primarily a writer, yeah, a biologist, yeah, and uh, writes beautifully. So. Um, no, William Hamilton, I remember having dinner with him one night at Oxford, and he said, you'll never persuade me. And uh, <laughs> after at the end of dinner, I said, well, we can be friends and still argue about it. And he said, oh, of course. But the next day I got a letter from him. He said, I take it all back. <laughs> I, I, I read your paper. Uh-huh. I didn't realise you'd included G- cheats. Uh-huh. In, in in Daisy in, World, in your model, yeah, yeah, and, and by cheats, by cheats, just so people who are listening know what he means, it was just the introduction of different variables into the That's Daisy right. World model that disrupted or potentially could have disrupted the way that Daisy World worked, but actually, it still had this homeoerotic. Well, tele- he yeah. went on a television program shortly afterwards, yeah, and he stated. Uh, no, the, the Gaia is a Copernican idea. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, I, so, I think, I think that, but I, I also think, Jim, that there's, there's just a question of, it actually takes a different gesture of thought, I think, to grasp Gaia than, say, grasping a selfish gene, sort of, uh, very one to one kind of thing. Selfish gene, it's a lovely idea. But it does seem, but well, it seems wrong. Explain everything. No, no, that's the problem. It seems it present. It's been presented for a long time as a totalizing explanation. But Gaia, I someone once explained to me or said to me that Gaia is the natural selector in a way, and that the the selector is in relation to the selected. And that's very difficult well, for people that are into selfish that's, genes. That's how you think of it. Yeah. Now, I don't disagree, but I think of it quite differently. Uh, I, I'm thinking of it is Gaia the, is a whole system, mm-hmm. and uh, the plants and the environment are components in that system. 
Right, right. Uh, the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere uh, is taken out by the plant trees mm-hmm. so that they can grow, and mm-hmm. the plants generally. That photosynthesis is well recognised. And uh, our action in digging up the buried carbon mm-hmm. from the photosynthesis, either as oil or coal, is what is threatening us because mm-hmm. we're interfering with the system that is regulating the planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, but beautifully you insist, and I agree absolutely, this isn't, like, don't drench yourself in guilt over this, actually. Oh, yes. This is part of, this is part of why, this is actually also part of why we've evolved the way we've evolved. That's right. Yeah. The problem is that if it were a thousand years ago or even 10,000 years ago, it wouldn't be a problem at all mm-hmm. because the the whole system was a bit younger then and the most important point is that the sun was a good bit cooler uh-huh. and it wouldn't matter all that much if you burnt some of the carbon and put carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and pushed up the amount. It would just get a bit comfortably warmer. Uh, but now we are near the edge. You can't go on raising the CO2 without disastrous things happening. And one of the most extraordinary disastrous things that so few people know about, it was discovered by John Horton, um, who was in charge of our meteorological office here in Britain long long ago. I think he's now dead, but uh, it it was... um, you know, quite a while ago. What he discovered was that if the seawater temperature rises to 47, quite not too hot, but not too hot to kill you, or even Baghdad goes to 51 mm. daily. Uh, so it's, it's a bearable temperature, but it would destroy the earth mm-hmm. if it goes to 47, because what happened with the rate of evaporation of water then increases steadily, and enough water vapours in the atmosphere, and it's much more serious, a greenhouse gas is water vapour than carbon dioxide, and then you run into runaway greenhouse. But, but are, you, do, are you ever hopeful that there are Gaian systems that actually will compensate? So like volcanoes, when volcanoes erupt, they have a cooling effect, right? Are you, do you ever think that those sorts of geo geological or earth systems will actually compensate without uh, intervention? No, quite the opposite. I worry about volcanoes (laughs) because the uh, Permian extinction that was called the Great Dying, when nearly everything was wiped out, it was a long time ago, admittedly, was a huge volcanic eruption. But are there are there more volcanic eruptions happening? Like, are we? Could we then note? Because I thought there was an increase in volcanic eruptions in the past, like however many decades. I'm not sure. I might be wrong about that. So I'm checking in with you. It was a long never... time ago. The Permian period. No, no. I mean, re- I mean, recently in the past few decades. Have oh, there they're been minor. Compa- in... They're none of them, but they did affect the climate very considerably, mostly in the direction of colder. Right. Because what they do was they put a lot of sulfur gas in the atmosphere that oxidized and then reacted with water vapor to form droplets mm-hmm. of sulfuric acid. 
uh, which then reacted with ammonia from biological sources. You've got little crystals of ammonium sulfate floating around, and they reflected sunlight back to space. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A friend of mine, Bob Charlson, discovered a lot of that particular work. So we shouldn't be hoping that the volcano eruptions will save us, because in fact, if it becomes necessary for more volcanoes, well, that'd be handy. Yes, exactly. (laughs) The airplanes hate it. Yeah, right, right. So that, but but just to put this picture all together, which I find is different than the picture a lot of people are giving about climate change. It's it's not just that we're blasting too much uh, CO two from our uh, from our cars, right, or whatever. We're we're it's because humans exhaling our plants. I mean, our uh, humans exhaling our, pe- our pets, our livestock. There's a lot of us. It's also the the sun reaching a greater temperature as well as the industrial output. So that's a much more complex picture than we usually get. And therefore your solutions and ideas of how to proceed will also be more complex, I think. Well, this is it. I'm afraid the universities have betrayed us because they teach single subjects or just one or two subjects that are related instead of teaching the whole lot. They say, well, that would be too difficult. It isn't. If I can do it, then it's not difficult. <laughs> so, okay. So then let me just give you a final question here and see see where we go with it and see where it takes us. So if humans are part, if humans are a Gaian component or, you know, a, a, an aspect of Gaia or whatever you might say, um, then, and it, and there's some aspect of this whether it's creating a certain kind of robot or code, or it's having certain uh, responses to climate change using nuclear energy, does that mean that morality then becomes a selective pressure? So in other words, if we have the right moral response to what's happening, then isn't morality a selective pressure in what's happening right now? Do you see what I mean by that? Because it's if it's on us to make the right moral ethical choice then that's a selection pressure for human life. Um, I'm not really sure. (laughs) This is where I admit I'm not a biologist. I don't understand the the full details of selective pressure. Okay. Um, Well, I can understand the the concept. Mm -hmm. That's all right. But... Uh, I haven't gone into it in the same way as I've gone into the uh, or the chemistry and the physics of the process. And again, as I keep saying, this is a matter. They didn't teach any biology to me at school mm-hmm. or university. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was considered a separate subject, so that other people did. And this is a grave mistake. Mm-hmm. We, 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 this Life on this planet is too important to ignore such important parts of it. You've got to have the whole thing, even if it's not as detailed as the, the professors would like it to be. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay, so final thing I want to ask you is just the, you know, I heard you talking with my friend uh, Doug Rushkoff on his on his show Team Human once, okay, and and he said, oh, what are you do, what are you doing now? And you said, well, I really want to work on thinking about what this new form of life will actually look like, what or what what it'll actually be. 
I don't know if that's still your project after Novacine or if there's something else that you've been uh, tumbling around in your head or been working on lately. Oh, lately? No, I don't know. Uh, it's uh, You should have given me notice of that question <laughs> because, well, I've got to remember what I was doing. And you you won't find many people of 102 can remember anything they were doing to... <laughs> Right, right. You remember, you remember like seventy years ago, but not last week. Is that it? Well, this is true, yeah. and you do. It's your, it's your short-term memory is the one that's most fallible. Uh huh. Uh huh. And uh, I'm, I can still manage fairly well. I haven't forgotten what I had for breakfast yesterday <laughs> and things like that. Um, and I don't lose my way anywhere, but. Uh, uh, you have to take account of my age in this. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> well, listen, I love that I finally got to meet you after all these years of like well, studying you know, your work. I, and Well, you've done a darn good uh, podcast. That's all I can say uh, from my you. point of view. <laughs> thank you. As long as you're not bored, that's all I want for the people that come on my show is to have a good time and not be bored and maybe be stimulated a little bit. So thank you so much, you know, for inviting me. Well, thank me. you yeah. for your understanding and thoughtful question. Yeah. All right, Jim. Thanks a lot. And thanks, everybody, for listening. <laughs>